So we looked at the source of courage, gift from God, saw what it was not, what it is. Now, this morning, we take up the subject of how we sustain it. So we have it from God, but how do we sustain this courage? How do we see it grow? So gospel-centered courage is the resolve to live as a follower or disciple of Christ in the midst of difficulty with strength, daring, and confidence. So we're going to look at uh, the account of Joshua. This is from Joshua chapter 1. For years, uh, in the years I spent as uh, a youth pastor, if I ever signed anything to people, when I signed my name, I wrote Joshua 1, 8, and 9. Because I am convinced this is crucial in the life of every believer, but I am convinced for people in your age group, if you will grasp what God is teaching here, it will transform how you live this stage of your life. You cannot presume upon God, meaning you can't just presume that you're just going to live and flow with life and everything's going to be okay. There, there, there are some specific things that we've got to keep in mind and that we have to uh, continue in in order to see sustained courage. In other words, so that we don't go back to living like the world or looking like something that we are not. So... We're at, with Joshua, we're at the edge of the promised land as we pick up Joshua chapter 1. And again, you're welcome to follow along in, the, in, in your Bible. So we start out understanding this, that Moses is dead. After the death of Moses, servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Okay, so why is it significant that Joshua begins by telling you that Moses is dead? In fact, when you read the second verse, it's repeated, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now this is God speaking directly to Joshua. It's significant for this reason. As God led the children of Israel out of Egypt under Moses' leadership and into the wilderness just outside of the promised land, which the intent was Moses to lead them across the river Jordan and into the promised land, because of Moses' disobedience, God did not allow him to lead the children of Israel there. So there's a break here to let us know that because of Moses' disobedience, now this responsibility to lead the children of Israel into the promised land is going to fall to Joshua's feet, to Joshua as the leader. So the Lord gives him clear instructions. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel." Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Now, here's what he's saying. You're going to cross over the river Jordan, and here's what Joshua knew this meant. There's going to be a fight. This is not just like, here's the keys to your new house, uh, whatever that show used to be on, Extreme Makeover. Here's the keys to reveal, walk in, take your new house. This, this, there's going to be a fight. This is going to require courage on the other side. A lot of you have heard of David Platt. David Platt is the leader of the International Mission Board, and he became the leader of the International Mission Board in his 30s, uh, the youngest person to ever do that. And as he was about to walk out to the worship service to where he was going to be prayed over and the 
responsibility of being the president placed on him, the former president who was in his early 70s, as they were walking up the steps to come up on the platform, leaned over and said to David, when it all falls apart tonight and they kill some of our missionaries somewhere, it's your job. And turned and walked up on the platform. David said, up to this point, I was thrilled to be the president of the IMB, and I walked out on the stage going, what have I done? So, this is where Joshua's at. What? Moses is his hero. It's his father in the faith. And God, you're telling me? I'm supposed to do what Moses couldn't do? I'm supposed to lead the people of God into the promised land? Now, that's going to require courage. So what we're going to see and how God instructs him is what is necessary for courage to be sustained. Because this is not just going to be a one-time event. It's an unfolding book as to how this, place, how this takes place. So the first thing we want to see is that courage is sustained by recognizing the presence of the Lord God. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And you say, oh, wait a minute. Moses couldn't accomplish it. What kind of promise is this? Moses couldn't accomplish it because of his disobedience. But you got to go back and remember what God did. Remember the 10 plagues and how God convinces Pharaoh, you better let these people go. Then after he does, Pharaoh changes his mind, pursues him with his army. He's going to destroy him. God parts the Red Sea. There are multiple other examples of how God was with Moses. So he's calling to Joshua's mind here. Remember, I was with Moses and I will be with you. Now here's what I'm convinced of. A lot of you in this room have never experienced courage because you've never allowed yourself to be in a place to where courage was required. You've never done anything that, that required a form of courage. So let me go back and tell you another story about my life. Uh, when I was in the ninth grade, I weighed, I weighed a crushing 100 pounds and was five foot four inches tall. I grew one foot in a year, by the way. You talk about an awkward year of your life. Uh, five four, 100 pounds. I was the object of... Uh, uh, what now people call bullying. Uh, it's just a, for the most part, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle anybody who's bullied. I remember the horror of it. It's just a part of the sinful world you live in. Um, so a group of senior boys picked me out. Our, our high school was designed around, it was a big square. The hallway was a big square, and it basically was an H. You entered the school off the corners of this square, and I rode the bus. You know, that's one of those yellow things that people get in and ride. So I rode the bus, and you got off, and I had to go in, down this way, and this way. So in, here, here. The senior boys stood right here. And one of them, for some reason, picks me out and decides to make life hard for me. I'd use another word, but I won't. I mean, he physically abused me, uh, knocked me down, called me names, just and everybody would laugh. So after about six weeks of this, I decided I'd go all the way around the school 
Now, I barely made it every day. I'd get off the bus, I'd go all the way around the school because my locker was just past them and, and get my, my things and then uh, make it to class without him seeing me. Well, he figured out I was going around it. So then he started meeting me at my locker. Now, this was real fun here. This is when it got intense. So finally, I told my dad. Now, my dad doesn't fight fights for me. Still wouldn't. He didn't then. But this is what happened. We go to the grocery store. There's one grocery store in our community. We go to the grocery store, and lo and behold, there he is bagging groceries. And we're waiting in line, and I said to my dad, I said, Dad, that's Trent. That's the guy that's... He said, all right. So we check out, gets down to the end, and, and you know, he, Dad notices this guy's staring. He's trying to intimidate me with my father. So... My dad picks up the last bag of groceries and he puts his hand out and he says, I understand you're Trent and you know my son. And he squeezed his hand and he said, I just want you to know I'm his father. And we walked out. Well, the next day, I came into school and I went this way. And guess what? He left me alone. Because now he knew who my daddy was. You see, the reason, the reason a lot of people intimidate you to the point to keep you going around in the world is because you've never let them know who your daddy is. He will not leave you. He is with you. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now what's in, contained in the next paragraph is the crossing, or the moment of the crossing of the River Jordan, outside of Jericho where the first big battle happens, and where God proves himself faithful. Now, how does this apply to you and I today? We're, we're not with Joshua. We're not with the children of Israel outside of or across the River Jordan, outside the Promised Land. What do we have? And how does God use this similar language? Now, Mark 1.20 is a typo. It's not supposed to be there. What's supposed to be there is Matthew 28.20. So I want you to take a Bible and look at it with me. Matthew 28.20. What's in Matthew 28? Those of you who've been around the church long enough to know. The Great Commission. So here's what God's done. He's not just called out one Joshua and said, take the children of Israel in the promised land. God has given a mandate to the entire church. Now, we're going to spend more time talking about this tomorrow in depth. But I just want you to see what, 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 he's, what he's doing here. So Matthew 28, 20. Uh, one of you ladies, how about reading verse 20 for us? Anybody? Go ahead, stand up, turn around so everybody can hear it. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right. So God has placed this command, and we'll look at it in depth. God has placed a command on every believer, and here's the final promise with it I'm with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, here's what's implied in the Great Commission. It's the same thing with Joshua. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight. This, it's not going to be easy. And what you've got to remember as you progress and proceed in what God has placed on our, on our lives as believers is that he never leaves us. 
So we don't need to be frightened. We don't need to be dismayed. We proceed in courage. Second thing we want to see. Courage is sustained by continuing in the will of the Lord. Be strong and courageous, verse 6, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, God's emphatic here. Here's what he's saying. I have a plan for my people, and you're a part of that plan, and I'm going to fulfill that plan. Only be strong and very courageous, verse 7, being careful to do according to all the law that my Moses servant commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, here's one of the big perplexing questions of somebody your age, 15 to 25, what's God's will for my life? Now, God has individual plans for your life. I, I, I firmly believe that. I think that's evidenced in the scripture. But as Christians, there are clear things that God has laid out for all of us that we all share that are God's will for us. How do I know what that is? Huh? The Bible. So I read the Bible. I study the Bible. I find out from the Bible what God has said. Now, I have a question or two. Will God's individual plan for your life be contrary to the word of God? How often will that be true? It'll never be contrary, ever. Well, but it will never be contrary. Will God's plan for your life ignore part of the Bible? No, it will not. But here's what amazes me is that, that I'll find people in your age bracket talking about something that they think God's called them to do. This is God's will for my life, and it's ignoring the Bible. For example, for example, when 15 years, not 15, 10 years from now, don't call me and say, hey, Pastor Jeff, will you do my wedding? Hey, is, is the dude you're going to marry a Christian? No, but this is God's will. Don't call me. I'm not going to do it. How can you marry a non-Christian? That's contrary to the Bible. That's just one example of what young people will try to do. We cannot ignore the Bible and we cannot act contrary to the Bible and what we're supposed to do in our life. Now, I want you to look at Matthew 14. It's on the next page. So this is Jesus and the disciples. He sends them in a boat. They're crossing the sea, and he walks across the sea. And the disciples see him walking on the sea, and it says they were terrified. It's a ghost. They cried in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, don't be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to go out to the water. He said, Come. So the Lord here instructs Peter, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was what? Afraid. So this is a, so up to this point, Peter has been exercising courage. God, that's you. Tell me. Jesus says, "Come," which is smart. If Jesus didn't say, "Come," stay in the boat, right? Jesus says, "Come." He comes. Then, then he starts realizing, man, th 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 this is dangerous. So he begins to sink. 
Now, thank God for his grace. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and told him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, truly, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, here's the issue. The issue is he lost his courage because he turned away from what Jesus was telling him to do. You lose your courage when you start disobeying what Jesus has told you to do in his word. Now, thank God for his grace if that's where you're at. If you've been ignoring his word, you've been ignoring what he said, if you're ignoring him, then what's funny? I didn't tell a joke. You guys doing all right back here? All right, just checking. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. I'm not trying to be mean. Say, I lost track of my thinking. Like, dude, don't distract other people, including the ADD preacher up here. It would be helpful. All right, I'll reset. Courage is sustained by savoring, obeying, and speaking the word of God. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. You shall be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. So there are three things I want to extract from this. We are to savor the word, we are to speak the word, and we are to obey the word. First, savoring the word. He says, meditate on it. You can concentrate. Oh, you know, you know I, I, got, I got ADD. I, I, nobody's got it any worse than me in this room. Nobody. You can concentrate. And here's how I know you can concentrate. I've seen you do it. Just put a cell phone in your hand and you can go into a state of concentration like nobody's ever seen. And every one of you in this room can do it. The world could explode around you. You can concentrate. So stop saying you can't. Here's what you concentrate on. Here's the important point. You concentrate on what matters to you. Now, that is the truth. That is a major capital T truth. You concentrate on what matters to you. And what ought to matter to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is what God has said. So it says in Psalm 119, in, your, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, do you notice this is an act of the will? I will meditate. I will fix my eyes. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, uh, somebody, I don't have my cell phone. Somebody hand me a cell phone up here. I'm like y'all don't have one. Don't throw it. Now, I, I want to make a challenge to you. This is why you meditate on these things. It has become very common that when I stand up to preach now, instead of the shuffling of pages, I see the glow of faces. Now, I'm not, I own a cell phone and I use it. Here's why you don't need to read your Bible on your cell phone. How can you concentrate with something 
that's going to give you a notification while you're reading from it. You tracking with me? This is not a good means for the Bible, especially when you're reading it by yourself and when somebody like me is preaching and you're sitting there with it. The temptation, and you'd be lying if it's that you hadn't done this. The temptation while somebody's preaching from the Bible for you to start doing something else is huge. To know what God has said requires concentration. So you need to make sure that you're not doing something that is keeping you from concentrating and savoring what is happening. All right. Look in, this is... uh, Exodus 33, 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So God was telling Joshua to do something he had already been practicing in his life. It's what new. He was telling him to continue to do this, continue to meditate. All right. <clears throat> Obeying. Do all that I've commanded you. Psalm 119.9. How can can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. So let me say something clear, plain, and straightforward because I'm tired of hearing this. Obeying the Bible is never legalism. Now, seeking to obey parts of the Bible to get saved, that's legalism. That if you think you do this, God will save you. That is ignoring the grace of God through Jesus. But those who have been saved by Jesus, by his grace, now have been given his word, and to obey his word because you're a follower of Jesus is never legalism. I, I, I... My head is about to explode by hearing young adults say when somebody else is following Jesus, well, he's a legalist. No, obeying the Bible is never legalism. You are not free in Jesus to do what you please. We are called to be careful to do all that he has commanded us to do. Who did the commands come from? God. Here's what's unfortunate. Here's why some of you are having trouble. I can't undo your parents, okay? I cannot undo your parents. But here's why some of you are having trouble. You were raised as friends, not children. So your parents made things optional for you to do. God is not your buddy. He's not having suggestions in his Bible that if you think this is okay for you, do it. If it's not, don't. God is God. And he has commanded things in his word that we are to do. Now, there'll be discussion about that point, at least in your eternal. And I can see the resistance in the room and the stern faces at me. And just kids either. God... Word is to be obeyed. Last speaking, he says, do not let it depart from your mouth. 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Do you present best to present yourself to God as one approved? A worker does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Both of these are assuming that we are speaking the word of God, that we are sharing the word of God in the midst of conversation and in formal places like I'm doing or your small groups or other places like that. Why are Christians silent? There's two reasons. Get these. Why are Christians silent? Number one, they don't know the Bible. Because they don't know it. They keep silent. They don't speak it. Number two, people don't speak the Bible because they're disobeying it. So because they're disobeying it, they don't speak the truth. This is a a very uncomfortable illustration here, but I want you to hear it. So uh, early in my ministry life, I was involved in a church, and there were multiple sexual issues going on in the church. And the pastor would never address it. He'd come to a place in the Bible that addressed it, he'd gloss over it and move on. But he might like to guess why he wouldn't address it. He was having an affair himself. So you must savor and know the Bible and you must obey the Bible so that you courageously speak the Bible, that you speak the truth of the Scripture. Last, courage is sustained by believing the Lord. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have a good success. We're in verse 8. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. you got to keep believing. So the question is, I have for you, I don't know if you know the rest of it. Does, Does Joshua succeed? Do you know? Read the book of Joshua. <laughs> the answer is, yes, he does. He succeeds in what God calls him to do. And the Lord was with him. Now, turn to page 62. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In chapter 11, then, a description of what faith look like, looks like unfolds. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down and they been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say, for time will not fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lying, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Now we've shifted into the New Testament people. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, 
of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth. Now, that's a description of courageous people. Courageous people who willingly do what God has commanded them to do, who by the convictions of things they not see, they believe God and they step forward. So here's my final question to you this morning. Am I sustaining courage or quenching courage? Am I sustaining courage or quenching courage? So I'm going to quench courage when I'm silent. I'm going to quench courage when I am not spending time in the word. I'm not savoring it. And I'm going to quench courage if I'm disobeying God's word. It's going to be quenched out of my life. Hebrews chapter 12. By the way, it's not Hebrews 121. We just added 113 uh, chapters to the Bible right there. It's Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured sinners from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So here's the image Hebrews 12 gives you. Now get this. You're surrounded by a, a great cloud or group of witnesses. And these aren't the people you're looking to, but this is the image of the Bible that all the saints now and those that have gone before us are cheering on those who are living now. But we don't look to them. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to the warrior. He is the one that we set our eyes and affection on. And here's what we keep in our mind. We consider that he endured from sinners hostility against himself so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. We don't lose courage. We don't give up because he did not. All right. I'm going to tell you another story of an old guy. And I know some of you don't like history, but... Because of this guy that I'm going to tell you about now, you have one of these. There was a point, a long period of history called the Dark Ages, to where even churches, not just individuals, churches did not own a copy of the Bible. The people did not have access to the Scripture. You might remember what year we talked about Martin Luther. So in 1490, William Tyndale was born. He was born in England. Brilliant young man. He knew seven languages by the time he got to university. So here's what our, our society says to the young, brilliant Christian. Oh, go make all the money you can make. Go, go do it. Sometimes God says to the brilliant mind, Here's what I want you to do. So he got access in university to study the New Testament, like Luther. And as he began to discuss with the clergy, here's what Tyndale discovered. They didn't know what was in the Bible. They had no clue. So Tyndale decided that what he was going to do or what he wanted to do, what he believed he was to do, was to translate the Bible into English, which did not exist at this point. Now, he had a problem. You want to guess what the problem was? 
That was illegal. So he went and approached the king. The king denied him. So Tyndale went into hiding. He crossed the English Channel into Europe, and he moved from place to place and began to translate the Scripture. He completed the New Testament and most of the Old Testament. In partnership with some other people, they smuggled uh, 16,000. Wait a minute, not 16,000. I got my number wrong. This story, by the way, is on page... Uh, yeah, 16,000 copies. That's right. He, he, he uh, smuggled 16,000 copies of the Bible into England. So, now think about this. Tyndale's moving around Europe, translating the Bible. Over in Germany is Luther, who's now stood down the Catholic Church, and he's translating the Bible into German. They know, they know about each other, okay? And what happens is a friend... I'm sure, I'm sure they were being a good Christian. A friend turned Tyndale in. He was arrested, deported back to England. He remained in jail for one year, and then he was sentenced to death. Now, this is a great story for you to study sometime. So in England, they burned him at the stake. So they lit the fire around Tyndale's feet, and these were his last words. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Months later, I mean less than a year later, the king of England passed a law that the Bible was to be translated into the English language and made accessible to the people in congregations. Now, this fueled and ignited I don't want to work the illustration too hard, but it's fitting that Tyndale was burned because this ignited the Protestant Reformation like nothing else, that the Bible got into the hands of people. And people began to speak the Word of God. They began to savor the Word of God, and they began to obey the Word of God. And the gospel spread like wildfire. Now, here's, here, here, here's, here's what I want you to, th to think about. William Tyndale and others gave their life so you could have this. As a follower of Christ, why would you ignore this? I think it all comes back to this. Guilt will not get you to read the Bible. Everybody hear me. Let's wake up for a second. This is real important what I'm going to say right here. Guilt will never get you to read the Bible. You know what will get you to read the Bible? Conversion. I hated to read before I became a Christian. This is the truth. I'm not making any of this up. I hated to read. I never read an entire book. I was a straight A, 4.0 Student, you couldn't do the 4.0 plus when I was in high school. All right? It was it. It was the top. Never had read a book and still made those kind of grades, AP classes. When I got saved, God put a passion in me to read the Bible. It came from God. I believe he puts that desire in every Christian. Now, 
I believe you can quench that desire. But I believe it's there. And you got to learn how to practice it and operate it, but it's there. It's there in the heart of the believer. And it sustains the courage that is necessary for you to live out a courageous Christian life. It will not be sustained any other way. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Joshua. I thank you, God, for what we see in your word. And I thank you that we see evidence in history of people like Tyndale who discovered your word and who lived out Joshua 1, 8, and 9 and lived courageous lives. I pray you would birth that kind of courage in these young men and women and that they would sustain it through your word. Bless now, we pray, as we sing and as we move through the rest of our day. In Christ's name.